Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited about our conversation today. We have Dmitry Dadyumov, who is the CEO and co-founder at Modern Treasury. We're going to be talking about fintech, about payment software, about founding companies, and I'm really excited to have a conversation with him. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So where we start in trying to understand how folks got on their fintech journey and the different parts of their career that influenced the things that they've built along the way. Can we start a little bit with your entry into the industry and how that came together? Yeah, certainly. I grew up with both of my parents are computer scientists. I grew up in Seattle. Both of them had worked at Microsoft when I was growing up. So I kind of grew up with a lot of tech around the dinner table. And I wanted to join and, and work and, and, and potentially start, you know, tech startups. That was something that I was very interested in going back to college. And so I really started my career working in product and business development roles at, at early stage companies. And in 2015, I joined Lending Home, which is an online mortgage company. And in that role, we ended up coming across a lot of the problems that we're solving with Modern Treasury today. But really, it was being a PM focused on the investor side of the marketplace at Lending Home that led me and my co-founders, Sam and Matt, who were at Lending Home with, with me as well, led us to understand a lot of the complexities that go into payment operations at companies that move money as a core part of their product or service. And that was the beginning of the journey of Modern Treasury. So I'm going to ask you a, a naive question. And... Sometimes you know, people don't know the, just the meanings of, of these words, especially when you're looking at things from finance, you know, you have certain roles. And when you're looking at things from tech, you have different career paths. You mentioned that you were PM, a product manager. What is a product manager from a tech perspective? It's a great question. So I think it's a question that most PMs ask themselves every day. I think at a very high level, the, the product manager role is really about setting forth a strategy and a product kind of ideation and then actually executing on it and working with different teams inside the company, coordinating between engineering, design, data, sales to bring a product to market and to bring a product to a customer or prospect and take them on a customer journey that makes sense and understand what are the things that can help solve real problems for customers? What are things that can nudge a prospect that's not entirely sure if this is the right product for them or not to experiment and try and, and ultimately become a, a daily user, weekly user, whatever makes sense in the context of the product. So for me, in my case, I was very focused on, as I said, the investor side of the marketplace, meaning we built a peer-to-peer -peer experience for individuals to go and invest in the loans that Lending Home was producing. And so you can kind of think of it as an e-commerce shopping cart where you'd log on and see a lot of different loans and properties that were being renovated. 
and you'd be able to invest in a particular one or create a portfolio of, of many different loans and get your reporting and things like that as, as an investor. And so just bringing all that together into an experience that is cohesive and coherent and makes sense is really ultimately the role of the PM. It's a really difficult role and it's so hard to actually be customer centric and you know, know what people want and what your customers are telling you versus what it is that the market is telling you and and navigating that. You did both the investing side as well as kind of gotten yourself into the lending business and you said the, the payments business, payments operations while you were there. Can you talk a little bit about the exposure you had to financial product and sort of what role financial product played relative to the technology piece? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think this is this is a very central question to a lot of fintech products. And really, fintech as a category can be very widely separated. There's sort of a spectrum of, of new innovation, some of them being purely financial innovations and relatively easy and straightforward as far as technical kind of implementation. There's others that are the opposite, which are technically incredibly difficult, but actually are mimicking or, or, or making something that's uh, relatively already available. So, you know, I think for for the product that we were offering at Lending Home, Lending Home still offers, really Lending Home was born out of kind of post-2008 crisis and an observation that there's a lot of, a lot of activity in the U.S. And, and I'm sure broadly as well, where individuals or, or companies are coming in and buying a property and renovating it and selling it because a lot of people want to live in a nice new house, but they want to have the exposed red brick and they want to live in the studio and they want to live in the city and things like that that become hard to kind of deliver as a new construction piece. So somebody has to go buy an old property and renovate it and, and, and hopefully, you know, sell it or rent it in six or 12 months time. And financing that as a financial product was something that was relatively unavailable. There was a lot of loans kind of that were available at the, you know, at the country club, if you will, that, that were not very much uh, an institutionalist product. And Lending Home and a number of other companies really came to that and brought it to a web experience that's more modern. So there's sort of a financial innovation of how do you bring Wall Street, how do you bring institutional capital into a new part of the economy that, that it hasn't prior to this like been present in. And there's also the technical innovation of how do you build a website and how do you build an, under, an understanding and a flow of information for investors to feel comfortable that they know what they're investing in, that they know what it is that they're getting in return for their money and that all the reporting comes back and things like that. So I think, you know, going back to the earlier question around what is the job of the PM, this is true for any product, but certainly true in fintech, you have to understand the financial product reality and how does this product that you have compete in the capital market, if you will, as well as on the other side, how does it technically work and how does it, how do you execute it and how do you make sure that it's, you know, scalable and, 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 and reliable and works well and the UI is good and things like that. And so that certainly contributes to the complexity of being an excellent PM in the fintech world specifically, because you have to you have to bridge the two. And it depends on what type of product you're working on. In some cases, you know, it's not a capital markets thing. It's something else. But, you know, in the payment world, you have to understand how banks work and, and, and banking or there's always something that isn't just purely a how does the HTML show up on the page, but actually how does this product work in the broader you know, economy and, and, and how, why is it attractive for somebody to 
buy it or use it or invest in it or, or something like that. Right. I imagine that you know these these are also these were chunky financings. Like these are large, meaningful amounts for people that are behaviorally difficult. They're at a point of their life where they're probably making a financial decision that that is complicated, and yet the rails aren't really in place. The modern rails aren't really in place to get this done easily. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of your insights around payment operations and, and embedded finance and kind of what pulled you from this initial experience towards modern treasury? For sure. It was a problem that we had as we grew. So Lending Home, by the time, by, by 2017 or so, it was probably about 300 people as a company and was scaling up pretty nicely. Was doing about a billion dollars in origination. And within that, there was, you know, tens of thousands of transactions that were flying around. Wires funding actual loans are going out to borrowers. ACH debits collecting that every month. Kind of book transfers, taking those ACH debits and putting them in the right place. And then eventually deposits and withdrawals on the investor side that can happen over, over different payment types. And so all of a sudden, we were kind of in this world where there was just like tens of thousands of payments flying around. These things were showing up as transactions on bank statements. We had some systems to automate certainly the initiation of those payments because we could were able to connect the, the website, if you will, to the bank and be able to facilitate those payments. But a lot of the reconciliation problems that were showing up, people saying, you know, what is this to a, to a bank statement? A lot of customer service problems where, you know, somebody was calling and saying, hey, I don't think this payment that I'm owed got here yet. Where is it? And, you know, the question becomes, what is the person on the phone, the customer service rep on the phone? What are they looking at and how do they actually answer that question? And so we started having a lot of these problems and, you know, Lending Home was growing nicely, but, you know, it was a bigger company, but wasn't yet massive the way that some other companies around us were. And so we started doing what I think a lot of, you know, PMs and founders try to do, which is run around and try to find people who have faced the same problem before and try to understand well how how did they solve it and what can we learn from that and what are the what are the next stages what what happens when you kind of look down the road a little bit and so i remember just talking to friends of friends and trying to ask you know how does uber do this how does airbnb do this how does angelist do this very different use cases but all those companies just moving tons of money for different you know marketplaces for the gig economy you know payouts for equity crowdfunding but the thing that's true is there's a website and there's a transaction that is facilitated from that website and then somehow that has to be reconciled and accounted for and audited and things like that. And so that led us down the road of realizing that actually every one of those companies, once we met like the friend, a friend, a friend, <laughs> eventually we would meet somebody who was part of the money team or the payments team. And that team was kind of building the same thing. Obviously, in some cases, like in Airbnb's case, it is incredibly global, which is not a problem that we necessarily had at Lending Home. But, you know, it was it was one of those problems that really was pretty horizontal and didn't feel very specific to mortgages or to funding startups or, or to ride sharing or something. It just felt very horizontal and something that should exist across different banks, across different accounting systems, across different use cases. And that kind of led us down that road where when we started thinking about all the things that we really wanted to build in order to solve our own problems, on the one hand, none of it felt very mortgage specific. On the other hand, it felt very applicable to a lot of companies that we already knew. And that was that was the start of the modern treasure journey. It's it's fantastic how, you know, the growth of one part of the industry or, or the digitization of one part of the industry 
just exposes this legacy architecture, whether it's payments or banking infrastructure, to be so insufficient for for the task of running huge live systems across multiple industries in real time. This is a bit of a naive question, but I want to ask it anyway, which is why didn't things work? Like why why wasn't there an answer? What were the banks not doing, you know, when you were trying to put something together. Because there's all this talk about digital transformation and open banking and APIs and so on. But clearly, that isn't in the marketplace in a meaningful way from traditional institutions. Can you talk about how you saw that and maybe some of the underlying causes of that gap? Yeah, I don't think it's a naive question at all. It's a question that I've wrestled with for the first year or two of this company's life, which is, try to figure out why nobody had built it before. There was a moment when it started feeling like, okay, like I'm pretty sure that I know who'd use it and what they'd use it for. And the applications are, are you know, very omnipresent. You keep kind of running into them. And so like, why didn't it exist? Like, why has nobody built it? And I think I, I, think I sort of realized at least a part, partial answer to that, which is something that is a tailwind that we didn't even think about when we start the company. But if you rewind back to, you know, 2000 or 2005 or something like that, and you think about commerce on the internet. So the internet is like a new thing, you know, 2005, like the internet existed for 10 years, right? And people were very uncertain about putting a credit card number into a web form. There was this kind of visceral feeling that people had about, I don't know if I trusted, they would get like an extra credit card that would be just their like web credit card. And they would not sort of trust their main credit card with with putting it into, into the, 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 you know, for paying for things on the internet. And the problems that people were solving, if you think about kind of the big startup successes of that era, were things like, how do I buy a book, you know, right, like on Amazon? And how do I subscribe to something like Netflix? How do I buy a flight on, you know, Orbitz or Kayak or, or something like that? And those types of successes really operate on credit cards. So credit card commerce was the, the fundamental problem in like web commerce in general. And you, of course, you've had a number of companies that showed up around 2007, 8, 9, 10, Braintree, Stripe, Adyen, et cetera, that have like, built a lot of infrastructure to solve that problem. And I think that there was something about Lending Home getting started in 2013 that was, it was early in a class of companies that sort of couldn't have existed 10 years earlier that are really working in the intersection of the internet, but also industries like real estate and healthcare and education and so on, where you really don't operate in those industries on credit cards. You really operate on, at least in the U.S. domestic context, you operate on over ACH wire, paper check, things like that. And so all of a sudden you had these companies that we were able to go run around and talk to who were innovating. You know, another, another great example of this is Gusto, like doing payroll. Like there's no... There's no credit card in the payroll flow. You know, you take money from a company, you send funds over to employees and to tax agencies and so on. None of that happens over credit card. It all happens over ACH wire and check. And so I think one of the reasons why I don't think that if we had or somebody had tried to start Modern Treasury 10 years earlier, I don't think it would have worked. So, you know, because I, I don't think there's a lot of companies that were trying to solve problems and mess with parts of the economy that really needed this type of this type of infrastructure. And I think the world is very different now where we're seeing a lot more need for that. But the companies in the 20, call it 10 to 15 era that needed to build this, they all have their own internal payment type 
teams and they they're very proud of a lot of the things they built as they should be because it, it, it's really hard stuff to build but if you're starting today there's there's no scenario where you would really want to build that scale of internal payment infrastructure as an engineering matter that's fascinating and and really insightful right you first have the economy, the real economy move in a certain platform shift or a certain direction. And then you have finance kind of wrap around it with features that that it brings. And you can't put the infrastructure before the actual use case. There's no point. And so it's just like such a rapid expansion that brings with it these, these new types of rails. I want to ask you about, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but who modern treasury is for? And I think this is really fundamental too. You know, you have this positioning around APIs, you have this positioning that it's built for developers, and there's, there's a bit of stuff around, you know, the the CFO suite and for folks who are running a business, can you talk a bit about like the, the customer segment that maybe the, in, within the go-to-market motion, who the purchaser is, and then how you think about wrapping the product towards them? Absolutely. We believe that modern treasuries for companies of very different sizes, meaning that we have startups that are three, four, five people that are using us and we have public companies that are using us. And that's really important because I think as a product, we aim to be the right product for you that can scale with you. You can start early and you sort of live with. And there's new you know, functionality that sort of opens up and unlocks. I almost think of it as a video game, right? Like a start, starting a company is a video game where you kind of unlock new levels and you need new things. And sometimes the products that got you through a certain phase you sort of discard and you go to the next version of that product. And sometimes you can actually live with them for a long time. And so kind of going back to maybe the the, the the Microsoft upbringing, I think a lot about how do you build a platform and a product that actually just, you know, uh, lives with you forever. Like Bill Gates's famous sort of mission was computer in every desk in every home. So that's, that's very ambitious. That's, that's presuming within it is this computer is doing anything you're doing, <laughs> you know, uh, in the office or at home. And of course, they, they sort of got that mission delivered on it. But, you know, I think so. I think a lot about how do you make sure that this product actually lives with you from the early days to, to later. And as the company grows, the complexity and the, and the roles actually change. So to answer your question, who is it for? It's for anybody who is moving money as a core part of their product or service. So if you are building a product, whether it's a fintech company or a marketplace or a real estate company or an education company or what, what have you, and you have a flow in your website or in your app where at some point you initiate a payment, it could be a credit, it could be a debit, but you know it's a very generic thing. But if you initiate a payment, you have to be able to transfer and translate that into bank speak. And you need to be able to record and audit and account for everything that happened. And so the buyer... Initially, in the early stage companies, usually there is no, you know, head of finance at a five person startup. There's usually it's a CTO founder kind of maybe product sale where somebody's trying to build a product and this and they say, I need I need an easy API. I need to have a dashboard that will have my webhook logs or, or what have you. And so it becomes very much a developer kind of sale in that sense. But as the company grows, all of a sudden, maybe the company becomes a 50-person company, and now there's a head of finance, and that head of finance owns the banking relationship and is understandably thinking about and maybe even worried about control of the bank account that the engineering team has. And so how do you provide, there's a saying that, you know, good, good fences make good neighbors. So what is the fence? How does the, how does the finance, you know, team have visibility and understand what the 
engineering team is doing over these APIs, over the open banking APIs that, that exist. And so you have to create a dashboard for them and rules and, and an ability to stop things if they're outside of certain certain rules that they feel comfortable with. They want to make sure that they're, you know, manually release something. And then, you know, later on when the payment actually shows up as a line item on a statement, how do you tie all the context that came from the original API call and the original intent for like why somebody, you know, somebody came to Coinbase, the app and said deposit and like they know everything about that person. They know who it is. They know at what point in time did they hit deposit. They probably even know what what device they're on, all that sort of thing. How do you capture all that so that the person who is doing month close can actually say, oh yeah, this is, we debited Dimitri for 50K because he did deposit. Like being able to connect all that to a line item on a statement is a really important function. And so how do you provide the dashboard and the magic view for that? And, you know, as the company grows, I think there's just more and more of these magic views. There's the customer service use case. There's the audit use case. There's accounting use case. There's other problems that show up all the time that we're seeing as we get into larger companies. And, you know, so there's a lot of different users for it, but it's really for anybody who is building a product that needs to tie the engineering, if you will, function to money movement through the banking system. The word finance, it's so dangerous, even in a company like that you're describing as a potential client, like you've got the finance function for whom being able to tie the money flows into accounting statements and be able to represent what it is that the firm is doing from just like a raw operations perspective, that's a huge challenge, you know, and tooling for the financial suite of a business, you know, has seen tons of investment and ton of progress, you know, and like you said, you don't have to be a fintech to, to benefit from that. And then on the other side of that, you also have the finance products like the payments products, the money movement products, or connectivity to deposits and banks, right? And you've got companies that are selling financial products or causing financial flows on behalf of customers that are trying to get people invested or that are trying to on-ramp them into something else. I know you've articulated this before, but how do you think about the, the primary stakeholder? Which side of the network do you start with? Or is that even in the right way to, to frame it? I don't know that there's a primary stakeholder. I mean, to some degree, we'll, we'll work with whoever is tasked inside the company to solve this problem. And it's it can change. I mean, some companies, in our observation, there's companies that are very tech first, and they focus on kind of trying to automate everything and build everything before they really get meaningful scale. And there's other companies that are more ops heavy, and they will do things much more manually for much longer and only then come back and, and fully automate it. And there's pros and cons to, to both approaches. And sometimes in the let's automate first kind of mentality, usually it's a product or, or technical uh, engineering kind of driven conversation. And in the latter, it's oftentimes an operations or finance driven conversation. I think every case is a little bit different. As a product person, I think about how does this product work for both, right? How does this product actually make sense? I mean, if you think about something like Excel, maybe as a, as a tool that a lot of people are very familiar with, you have people who are really using Excel just for uh, you know to-do lists and, and aren't using any of the fancy kind of math formulas. And there's people who are building you know crazy macros that are that run into the tens of thousands of rows. And and so how does that product actually work well for both? I, I think about that a lot. So we have companies that are doing tens or maybe hundreds of payments per month. That is like five people, and we have companies that are doing hundreds of thousands of payments. You know, and obviously a lot of the 
user journeys and reporting flows and things like that change between them. But how do you make sure that actually the product just works for both and, and delivers on its promise of like, hey, I'm going to make this part of your product easy. Like you have a hard job building this company. You have, you're trying to revolutionize real estate or healthcare or what have you. You don't need to worry about the banking and payment ops and accounting side of it. We'll take care of it. Like that, that I think has to be true for, for different size companies. Gotcha. Makes sense. I guess an adjacent question would be around, you know, partnerships and integrations and getting a sense of where you are relative to, to other software or embedded finance providers in the space. You know, one thing going through your site that stuck out at me is the direct piping you have to some of the large banks. How did that get kicked off? Like how how do you choose where you want to build from scratch versus where you are working through partners? And then, you know, how did you decide to create these direct relationships with the larger banks or sort of like what drove you into that decision? We think about direct relationships as always being the best option, ultimately, because you can have a little bit more control over what happens between both in technical and business sense. But, you know, we started out working with Silicon Valley Bank. They were our first bank partner. When we were in Y Combinator, we spent a lot of that summer really just building that first integration and trying to make sure that we can build it in a, in a way that's that can be abstracted enough to support other financial institutions as well. And then we really have been following our customers, meaning when prospects you know, come to us with a new bank that we don't support, but otherwise they have a perfectly good use case and have a desire to use modern treasury, we will at least explore and, and, and go, go talk to the new institution for us. And usually there's some interface that exists at, the, at that bank and we'll work over that interface, whatever it might be. So we make it relatively easy, I think, for our partners because we're very flexible and we don't have, we're not very, we don't have a philosophy around how it should best work other than we're promising a certain set, set of reliability and, and otherwise promises to our customers. But at the end of the day, really, our bank partners are very important to us, both in serving our mutual customers, right? So a lot of these companies are going to be customers of one or more banks and they want to use modern treasury and we have to be able to kind of all work work nicely together to serve them and, and, and serve their needs of, of really building a, a, the best company that they can build. And then on the flip side, we can work with the banks to really bring them, you know, more innovation, more customers, they can bring us customers, all that sort of thing that, you know, just takes takes a life of its own and is different in every institution. But we ultimately very much believe like we have a, a place in the world, which is we want to be an independent software company focused on solving this problem. And, you know, banks have theirs, which is, you know, their, their financial institutions standing behind uh, a lot of these accounts and, and these corporate clients. And so there is a way in which we complement each other and really serve our mutual customers best. And that's, I think, the makings of every good partnership. I want to push a little bit more around this topic to give it color because, you know, in a in a past life, I was doing integrations into investment custodians, and it was a special kind of pleasure. And I've gone through, at that time, every data aggregation approach, whether it's CSVs or whether screen scraping or whether trying to go through a third party. And then every custodian would have a different architecture to their data. And it is a very, very heavy lift. you know. And then the other path I know of is integrating blockchains into a crypto wallet, which is more modern, but similarly difficult because 
each one comes with its own approach to computation, its own approach to accounting, its own approach to consensus, and so on. And so I'd love to hear you know, whatever you can share around the bank connectivity stuff, like maybe an example of the best API, the cleanest technology, and you don't have to give names, but you know, like what's, what's the state of the art for a bank to allow like read, write access to, to money movement. And then the, you know, the opposite, like what's the jankiest, strangest, oldest version of that, that you've had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, let me just preface that by saying that to some degree, what you just described is the value prop and and a big part of the value of modern treasuries that all this stuff you don't have to understand as a customer, as a prospect. When it starts dawning on a, on, on some engineer, what are the kind of different complexities that can happen when you're integrating a bank or multiple banks? All of a sudden, this is where modern treasury hopefully becomes incredibly appealing in saying, look, you don't have to worry about it. Here's a single API. We'll worry about the details of how that actually works with every particular financial institution. And I think just as importantly, it allows companies to to have this approach that isn't just, you know, go make one integration happen and then afterwards build the set of reporting and kind of one-off feature requests that then the, the ops and customer service and finance team come back with because you know, you can you can imagine that no engineering team builds the perfect UI for for their ops teams when they first kind of do that first integration, and so the business starts humming before there's a way to really manage it and control it, and that's that's one of the problems that modern treasury can solve. But specific to your question, I mean, yeah, like we think of about ourselves a little bit as this you know bank integration you know center of excellence, and that means that we can. We, we have a lot of tooling around, we've seen a lot of patterns, we have a lot of technology that's already built for adding new types of connections, and they can range anything from SFTP-based systems to APIs that can be REST, they can be SOAP, they can be really anything. And you know, I think the, the other element of what you're describing is also not just that it's technically can be challenging, but it's also there's a process for onboarding and underwriting and getting a customer live at the bank that is more of a it's more of an underwriting process than it is a technical process and that can also take many days and weeks so i mean in terms of you know the best to the worst i mean we've probably seen we've seen companies that uh, have been able to go live with major banks in 48 hours and we've seen companies that take three months or four months and it's partly technical although modern treasury can solve a lot of that speed of the technical implementation but it's also partly this this kind of relationship based underwriting approach that sometimes takes longer than customers would like so we're very focused on trying to solve both and trying to make sure that clients can come to you know come to their the favorite kind of financial institution they want to work with or come to us and and kind of go from not a customer of a bank not implemented, not live with an app to kind of fully up and running in a matter of days. And I think that unlocks so much innovation and so much creativity and then so on, but there's a lot of nitty gritty in there. So that's something that hopefully we can help unlock for the you know web economy, if you will, if we really solve this. Yeah. And is it fair to, to say that your counterparty on the, integ- on the bank integration side is like, is the wholesale part of the bank rather than the retail part? Yeah, I mean, all of our customers today are, are corporate clients. And so different banks, you know, are organized differently. It could be commercial or corporate or wholesale, but basically never the retail part of the bank. Right. And that is also probably why 
some of the tech that they offer to you might be a bit better because there might be an expectation that they have a more sophisticated counterparty that wants to connect to those hooks and so on. Can you talk a little bit about in the time that you've been up and running, what, what change have you seen in the industry? What change have you seen in the temperature of the banks that you approach in order to do integration as well as you know, if, if you've seen any change in the customer set that you have, whether, you know, the fintech itself and, and what it's trying to do sort of is, is reflecting something different than maybe kind of your original bet. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, have you been surprised at all by the way that the business has evolved? And then similarly for, for your partners and your counterparties, have they undergone any digital transformation or any behavioral change as well over this time period? Yeah, I think there's obviously been a ton of funding in fintech over the past two, three years. And I think that there's that that's led to a couple of things. One is, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, this thing about entrepreneurs' ambitions just growing and, and people are really messing with industries they haven't messed with before. And I think that's something that's partly probably just the state of tech in the world. Part of it is probably driven by the pandemic where certain very paper-based processes and in industries like real estate or healthcare in the U.S. have really been pushed to the limit or, or past the limit. And all of a sudden, a lot of the digital solutions become not just nice-to-haves and efficiency kind of gaining, but they're actually like the only way you can do certain things. And so I think that there's there's been maybe faster progress as a result of that than we had really thought. I think one thing that is clearly also true is I think as there's been a lot more focus and funding and progress in the fintech world from the kind of startup and VC side, if you will, I think banks have been more open to working with those companies, I think it's particularly true in, in crypto, where it used to be that most major banks just flat out wouldn't work with crypto clients. And that's changed pretty dramatically. And of course, we have companies like Coinbase that are just large public companies now. So I think I think that's been a, a big change. I don't know that it's unexpected necessarily, but it probably happened a little bit faster than most people would have thought. And then, you know, the thing that I'm sort of most excited about is really watching our clients scale super quickly because we, and there's a number of other infrastructure companies that are not even fintech related, but take away a lot of the day-to-day -day problems that used to be part of building a company. So when you think about the promise of software, it's just getting companies up and running as quickly as possible and going and solving the problem they're kind of uniquely qualified to solve. And we think about as we build our own kind of version of a best company that we can try to build, you know, all of our clients are doing the same thing. And, and how do they not have to think about things like, you know, CRM or marketing automation or all these things? I think payment ops is, is another one of these, which is it can really, you know, kind of bring a company to a halt and cause a lot of problems and a lot of thrash if it's not done right. And so if you can pick up a piece of software and just run with it, that's a pretty wonderful thing. So I think just seeing some of the clients of ours that we signed on early on in 20, you know, 18, 19, 20, really scaling at pretty, pretty unbelievable rates is really cool to see because they wouldn't have been able to do it. I mean, I know from firsthand experience at, at Lending Home, like there's, there's things that we would have been able to go so much faster if we just had modern treasury back then. That's uh, an incredible ride to be on. I want to close with a similar question to where we started, which is around product management. I mean, the company's been on this really fantastic quick scaling journey. And, you know, you've got the compounding of the company and the compounding of your clients, which I'm sure puts immense and if not unbearable pressure on, on people, on systems, on recruiting and so on. 
can you talk a little bit about back to this question of building a product and product management and your approach to to doing good product management or designing an organization and scaling an organization that is able to build you know a beautiful performant product in such a hyper growth mode like what are some of the learnings you have about being on this path and and kind of retaining some of that DNA, that best practices DNA that gave you the insight to build the company? How can you bring that along into recruiting, into the organization, and into the culture as the company grows? Yeah, we can talk about this uh, question for another hour or more, but. I think a lot of the same approaches in the way a product manager really has to be thinking about all the constituent pieces of the product really working. So how do I make sure that it's reliable? How do I make sure that it's designed well? How do I make sure that the customer, you know, sees it at the right time in their kind of life and at the buying moment where they, they might experiment with it? And you have to kind of craft all the stuff that you can't, if one of those is not true, like the whole thing you know, falls apart. And I think as a founder and as a CEO, you end up thinking about the company as your product. And so how do we make sure again, that like we as a company are able to deliver on our core promise to our customers? How do we make sure that we're attracting, you know, the best people into the company and making it a good place to work and making it, uh, you know, challenging, but make sure people don't burn out and things like that. How do we make sure that there is a element of innovation and surprise and, and so on are associated with some of the product development that we're doing, that it's not just a feature request from customers, which we obviously have to deliver on, but there's that we have the capacity to both both as a product team, as an engineering team, as a, as a company to be able to invest in new things and experiment and accept failure. Sometimes things don't work and kind of move on from it. So I think that you get into this mode of, I think as a founder, where you're like sort of in the beginning, you don't have a lot of these functions. And so when you think about something like recruiting, it's like, let's go build a recruiting team. And you don't necessarily know anything about that. I mean, you have done it but by virtue of being a founder, but you don't necessarily, you're not an expert in that. And then you do the same thing with finance and you do the same thing with you know, sales and you do the same thing with, you know, team after team. And I think that's something that has been a definitely a steep learning journey for me. I've really enjoyed it. But I think a lot of the what allows you to scale is trying to not reinvent the wheel. And, you know, I think there's major reasons for doing things like Y Combinator. And one of them is not like not during the summer or the winter batch that you're actually part of. It's like three years later when you when you need to find people who have done something and have seen companies scaled past a certain point and like what happens and what breaks and what do we need to think about and you know none, none of the advice is literally applicable because it's a different situation but a lot of it is very informative and so at the end of the day it's all about like the team and the people and the culture you're creating and we know there's a lot of product surface area we know there's a lot of problems and let's just say non-elegant things that that happen inside of companies when it comes to b2b payments and to payment ops and things like that so how do we make sure that we just create a culture of people who are excellent in their craft, who are who are empathetic, and then can go and learn about our customers and build products that solve those problems? And if we're going to do that on repeat, we'll continue launching new new products and new experiences that should solve you know real problems. And I think value accrues to that over time. So that's kind of how I've approached it. And it's been a great ride so far, but it's, it's very early days and we certainly have a lot more to build. 
Beautifully said. Thank you for that. If our listeners want to find out more about you or more about the company, where should they go? So check out our website, moderntreasury.com. We are hiring, so you can go to the careers page and see open roles and more about us as a company. And I'm on Twitter. My handle is Dadimov, D-A-D-I-O-M-O-V. And so, yeah, feel free to reach out and DM or, or, or apply online if you're interested. Fantastic. Dimitri, so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>